Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture, John chapter 14 and Mark chapter 16. Seven weeks ago, we um, I came in intending to teach what I thought would be just a one-night message on uh, faith in the name of Jesus, and here we are seven weeks later talking about the same subject, And uh, but tonight I want to conclude this, uh, uh, this what's turned out to be a series, if you want to call it that, uh, teaching anyway. And um, we want to start with John chapter 14. Uh, I've made this statement before several times, but if you haven't been with us, I think it uh, it bears repetition and it doesn't hurt to be reminded of how things work anyway. Um, John's gospel was the last of the four gospels that was written. And John seems to fill in the blanks on some of the things that the other gospel writers let, let, left out. Now, Matthew was one of the twelve. Mark was not, Luke was not, and John was. So Matthew was really the only eyewitness account that had been written up until the time that John wrote his gospel. And uh, and John, who would certainly be aware of the other gospels that were out there, seemed to give us information that none of the other gospel writers tell us, and specifically information about the working of the Holy Ghost and what Jesus said at the Last Supper. That's um, uh, John chapter 14 and 15 are, are very instructive to us. In, uh, in that regard, because he, he really does give us information that we would have no record of any other way. Um, as such, John, as an eyewitness account, tells us of what happened after Judas left the Last Supper, after Jesus sent him out and uh, gave him the, you know, he had communion with these guys, um, and uh, he gave the sop to, to Judas and said, what you're going to do, go do. Well, Judas left the room, and John tells us that everybody thought, that he had gone to give to the poor. He was the treasurer. He was the one that held the bag, meaning the treasurer of the group. And whenever uh, Judas left the room, people, especially after Jesus said something to him, they assumed that he was gone to give to the poor, which means Jesus did a lot of giving to the poor. I mean, if you get up and leave the service, I don't assume you've gone to give to the poor, you know? And I wouldn't think that you would assume the same thing about me. So this was a regular operation and so that's what everybody's natural assumption, that was, that was the assumption of the twelve when Judas left the room. But after he left, Jesus shared some information with the, the remaining eleven that, uh, that's unique in all of the gospel writings and uh, in instructive, it, in my opinion, tremendously instructive about how things will work following Jesus' resurrection. Here's Jesus saying, here's how it's going to be after I'm raised from the dead. And as a result, or as a, as a matter of fact, what I meant to say, Jesus told them very specifically that he was going to be killed and he was going to be raised from the dead three days later. So when he found them huddled up for fear, wondering what is going on, that's why he upbraided them for their hardness of heart and unbelief. Now, granted, if it was us, we would have had just as hard a time believing it as they did. But he expected them to believe. He expected them to be looking for him three days later. When Jesus appeared in the midst of them, instead of being afraid and Jesus having to say, peace, be, you know, it's me, do not fear, they should have said, oh, Jesus, we've been waiting for you. But that's not the way it was. So Jesus tells them some things about the day that we live in, the church age, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the work of the use of his name. John chapter 14, verse 12, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. Now, we know the works of Jesus are identified in Matthew 9.35 as preaching, teaching, and healing. There were other miracles that he did and other things that he did, but they're summarized in those three categories, preaching, teaching, and healing. So he said, the works that I did or have done, 
believers, those that believe in me shall do also. And then he goes further and he says, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my father. Now, folks, I've, I've been real honest with you up to this point and will continue to be. I don't know what the greater works are. If he's not talking about greater in number, what in the world could it be talking about? I don't know how you get any greater work as far as quality is concerned than raising the dead. And Jesus did that. What greater work can you do? It's possible that he's talking about greater works in quantity. It's also possible that he's talking about a work of the Holy Spirit that wasn't done in his day, maybe in type or in principle, but is carried out in a different way under the church age. I really don't know. I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm trying my best to do the works of Jesus. And when I get there, then I worry about what the greater works are. Now, some of the church world say, well, I'll tell you what the greater works are, Pastor Mike. It's getting people saved. Jesus never got anybody saved. And when we preach the gospel and get people saved, that's the greater work because nothing is greater than getting people saved. Well, there's two problems with that. Number one, Jesus did get his disciples saved. John chapter 20 tells us after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared in the midst of them where they were assembled for fear of the Jews, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. Now, if Jesus said receive the Holy Ghost and they didn't get something, then Jesus lied to them. He deceived them. Yet we see that the Bible says from Luke chapter 24, verse 52, it says that after Jesus had appeared to them, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, which is a fruit of the Spirit, an evidence of being saved, and they were openly in the temple. Now they're bold. Now they're not huddled up behind closed doors anymore. So we see a change in their lives. Not only that, we see in John chapter 20 that when Jesus appeared to them, they call him Lord. And they certainly believe that he's raised from the dead, which Peter, which, uh, what's his name? Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, uh, that those are the two criteria. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. He said the two criteria is to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as your Lord. And that's who gets saved. Well, the disciples, after Jesus' resurrection, fit that criteria. So I'm certainly not going to say they weren't saved. Their lives changed. So in my opinion, Jesus has done what some of the church world called the greater works already. So I don't think that's what he's talking about. However, if we, if we just reject that consideration and say, all right, the church world is right. Those are the greater works. Let's work on getting people saved. I don't have a problem with that. But Jesus said we would not only do the greater works, he said we'd do the same works, which has to include healing the sick. So some of the people that are saying the greater works is getting people saved as an out or an excuse not to preach healing. I'm sorry, Jesus didn't give you that out. He said the same works and greater works. Amen? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. How are we going to do those, Jesus? Verse 13, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatsoever you shall ask, the word ask literally means to call for or require or to demand. Now, not demand in some kind of terms of arrogance or, or with an arrogant attitude. That's not what it's talking about, trying to force God to do something. But instead, it's talking about demand in terms of a contract. When you write a check, you place a demand on the checking account, on your checking account based on the funds you have because that's what the terms of the contract call for. The contract says you put your money in the bank, they hold it for you, and you can write checks and make a demand on those deposits that you put in the bank. That's what it means. 
Well, you don't have to have a bad attitude to write a check, do you? You don't have to be rude or arrogant to write a check. No, it's a legal transaction. That's what Jesus is talking about. He said, whatever you call for, whatever you ask or require or demand in my name, that will I do. Notice he didn't say God does it. He said, I'll do it. In other words, the name equals the man. Boy, if that ever dawns on us. If that ever dawns on the church world, we'll quit using the name of Jesus like some magic charm or good luck piece that we end our prayers with and we'll realize when we use the name of Jesus, when we put a demand on the name of Jesus, Jesus stands up to carry out whatever we've called for. Now, why did Jesus say he's going to do this? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Anybody want to take the argument or anybody suppose somebody else would want to take the argument that God's not interested in glorifying, being glorified in the Son any longer? Well, of course not. That's always going to be the case. How's it going to happen? Through the use of the name of Jesus. Now, folks, I got to tell you, if Jesus meant what he said here, if he didn't lie to us, if he really meant what he said, there's a lot of things that should be done in the church world that aren't being done. Now, I'm not in a position to point fingers and make accusations against anybody, but I think we've all got a lot of work to do. Don't you? Not only to do the same works that he did, but find out what these greater works are. In my opinion, I think the greater works are going to be discovered as we use the name of Jesus. Now, over in Mark chapter 16, Jesus, following his resurrection, tells the disciples some things about the use of his name. Verse 15, and he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This believing and baptized, the baptized he's talking about here has nothing to do with water. He's talking about being baptized into Christ. The Bible talks about salvation as being baptized into Christ. In other words, he that believeth and confesses Jesus as Lord is baptized into Christ. That's salvation. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about water baptism. Water is just a sign. Water baptism is just a sign of something that's already happened on the inside. And if something hadn't already happened inside, you could dunk somebody until they drown. It's not going to change them. Amen? If going in water got you saved, all you have to do is go swimming. That's not it. It's believing and coming into the family of God through Jesus. That's what he's talking about. That's what believing in his baptized means. Baptized into Christ, not baptized in water. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. If you're reading along in the King James, you'll notice I just blew past a lot of punctuation. The reason for that is the translators added the punctuation. There's none in the original text. They put the translation there or they put the punctuation there as long along with the, the chapter and verse designations as they saw fit to help us in our understanding. And for the most part, they did a wonderful job. But I think Jesus is saying these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Because the signs follow the name through belief. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Well, what signs? Number one, they shall cast out devils. Authority over the devils. The first sign, he said, of believing in the name of Jesus. Well, that makes sense. 
The Bible says for this purpose, John said, writing to the church, he said, for this purpose, the Son of Man was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. So if there's anything that God wants you to have is authority over the devil. Sign number two, they shall speak with new tongues. Oh, dear Lord. Instant controversy. Yet, if Jesus told us the truth, he said it's a sign of believing in his name. Folks, if this is true, if Jesus told us the truth, there's a lot of the church world that is saved that doesn't believe in the name. Or maybe we should say it this way. They believed in the name up to uh, four and up to the point of forgiveness of sins. But that's as far as they've taken it. And the name of Jesus apparently means a lot more than just that. These are things he's talking about after somebody's saved. Salvation was determined back in verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now he's talking about the names that follow the believing ones, the ones that believe in his name. First, they'll cast out devils. Second, they'll speak with new tongues. Third, they shall take up serpents. The word take up here means to lift up as an anchor. The picture is when you lift an anchor, a ship sails away. He's talking about setting people free from the power of the devil. He's not talking about handling snakes. They shall take up serpents. Again, it's an an element of authority over the devil. But this is not necessarily just for yourself. It's to set other people free. Sign number four, if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. He's talking about divine protection in the name of Jesus. Divine protection for those that believe in his name. Finally, the fifth sign is they, the believing ones, the ones that believe in his name, shall lay hands on the sick, and they, the sick, shall recover. Now, why don't we see more people healed in the body of Christ than we do? Because you can't find a whole lot of people that believe in the name. Or, again, I guess we better soften that up a little bit. We find people that believe in the name of Jesus up to or for the forgiveness of sins. But that's as far as they go. But Jesus is talking about believing in the name of Jesus beyond forgiveness of sins. He's talking about believing in the name to help other people. Amen? Now, again, if Jesus told us the truth, and and if you've got a uh, New International Version, you'll find out that there's a little uh, asterisk there or in some versions it says it'll just leave these verses out altogether some of them have a little asterisk or a little notation there that says these verses are not adequately supported by the original manuscripts well since the time that was published the dead sea scrolls have been found and this was one of the fragments that was found that predates the original manuscripts that the niv was founded upon i wonder if god knew that was going to happen so there's no question In our modern day. Now, for the most part, from what I've seen at least, and I don't keep up with this stuff real close, but from what I've seen in the uh, cursory examination that I've done, I haven't seen any of the NIVs changed. I haven't seen them uh, revised to include the latest discoveries. They just stuck with their original point, and that was it. Which tells you something about the translators. Tells you more about the translators than it does the text. So, folks, the translation is not always anointed, but God's word is. Amen? But if Jesus told us the truth, there's a lot of things that ought to be happening in the church world that we don't, might not see happening. Now, we've um, gone through the use of the name of Jesus in the early church because that's the period of time he's talking about. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. In other words, following his resurrection, here's how it's supposed to work. 
So we've gone through the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. We worked our way through uh, Acts chapter 14, I think, last week. Acts chapter 15 is talking about the council at Jerusalem where they were determining what uh, rules they should impose upon the Gentiles. And they decide that they really shouldn't impose any rules upon them, any of the Jewish law upon them, other than recommending that they not eat uh, meat uh, that's strangled. In other words, don't drink, don't drink or eat blood. But outside of that, that they be hospitable and, and give themselves to give to the poor. But outside of that, they didn't impose any rules or regulations on them whatsoever. In other words, there's freedom in Christ. Acts chapter 16, it tells us about how Paul supernaturally was sent to a certain city. Philippi, verse 12, they went to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by riverside where prayer was wont to be made. In other words, this is a place where people went to pray. Now, I don't know why they went to pray there. It's, um, it's speculation on our part to come up with, uh, with something. Maybe this was, uh, um, well, I really don't want to open a can of worms here. But a lot of times in the Gentile world, they had groves that were given to idols. It's very possible that Gentiles who had been idol worshipers went to nearby places to where those groves were, and now they're just praying to God. But we don't know for sure. We just know it's by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down, Paul and his company, and spake unto the women which resorted there. Apparently there weren't any men there, just the women were interested in prayer. And a certain woman named Lydia a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which are spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and abide there. And there she constrained us. So apparently she knew very little, if anything, about Jesus. She hadn't been baptized. She had no teaching about Anything other than the fact, perhaps, that Jesus had died and that was it. And so when Paul begins to speak, the Lord opened her heart. She gladly and readily received the things that he said. And then she invited him to stay in her house for the period of time that he was ministering in the city. Verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer. A certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination. uh, Another translation says soothsaying or fortune telling met us, which brought our masters much gain by soothsaying or fortune telling. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Now, folks, can I ask you a question? Isn't that true? Here this little girl is, speaking by the inspiration of the devil, telling the truth. Now, I got to tell you, I wouldn't want the devil advertising for me any more than I would expect Paul wanted the devil advertising for him. But why in the world would the devil be inspiring this little girl to speak in this manner, to tell who Paul is? I've got an idea for you. You judge it for yourself. But the fact that the whole world is being turned upside down and persecuting Paul to discover who this guy is so the Jews can find out and rise up Against him, which is exactly what happens. Would be the best way to expose Paul 
so he can bring further persecution against him. Nevertheless, it said, this did she many days. I don't know how many days is, but it's more than a few, I guess. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now, here's my question. Why did Paul wait till after many days were done? Why didn't Paul do it the first day? I think there's a lot more to verse 18 than what we read. It said, Paul being grieved, turned and said to the spirit. What is he talking about or what does the Bible mean where it says Paul was grieved? I believe that was where the Holy Ghost prompted him to use the name of Jesus to cast the devil out of this little girl. And prior to that point in time, even though we've been given authority over the devil in our own lives, you don't necessarily have the authority over the devil in somebody else's life. What if this little girl or her masters want her to keep this thing so that she can keep making money? You can't cast the devil out of somebody unless they want it gone. You can try all you want to and pray all you want to, and it's just not going to happen because God will never usurp a person's will. And unless their will is to be free, it's not happening, no matter what you want or no matter what God wants. Certainly, it's the will of God for everybody to be free. Why isn't the will of God accomplished? Because God won't usurp your will or the individual's will. But nevertheless, Paul was grieved in the spirit and turned and said to the little girl, or said to the spirit in this little girl, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now, don't you know everybody's going to be glad about this because Paul's done a miraculous work in the name of Jesus? Not so much. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, all they're interested in is money. They caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. Can I ask you a question, folks? Is Paul going around teaching Jewish customs? No, in fact, in the synagogues that Paul goes to, in the cities that he visits, he tells them that the customs are not necessary anymore because Jesus is raised from the dead. I guess the truth doesn't count for very much in every application, huh? And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, I guess the justice system worked about as good back then as it still does today. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison... And made their feet fast in the stocks. Do you understand what's going on here, folks? When the magistrates have them beaten, they give the jailer charge and say, you better not let these guys go. So the jailer says, all right, I'll put them in solitary confinement. I'll put them into the innermost part. I'll put them in the toughest part of the prison where there's no chance for them to get out. Folks, let me tell you something. When the devil thinks that he's got you in a position where there's no chance to get out, that's the perfect position for God to work. In fact... As long as you think you can get out, don't look for God's help. Because if you do get out, you'll think it was you. But you get in a place where everybody knows, hey, there's nothing we can do. That's perfect territory for God to work. Perfect territory for God to work. So you see the situation, and at midnight... Paul and Silas complained about how they were mistreated. No? 
Remember, folks, if you go back, why don't we back up a few verses to verse 6 of chapter 16. It says, when they went throughout Phrygia, here's how they got to Philippi to begin with. When they went through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. In other words, they wanted to go toward Asia, and the Holy Ghost said, no, don't go there. Now, I don't know how he said that. It must have been a quickening in their spirit or some kind of inward witness. But the Holy Ghost, they were sure that the Holy Ghost was saying, no, don't go there. And after they were come to Mysia, they essayed, that means they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Again, we don't know exactly, but it must have been the inward witness in some form. So they wanted to go first to Asia, and the Holy Ghost said, no, you can't go there. Then they wanted to go to Bithynia, and the Holy Ghost said, no, you can't go there. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And in that vision, there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, come over here to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision... Immediately, we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. That's a pretty supernatural way to go to Philippi, isn't it? Which is the chief city of Macedonia. But now they're in chains. Now their backs are bleeding. Now it's midnight. And they are thrust into the innermost part of the prison. And I'm sure they've been treated roughly. We know that they were abused when they were beaten. Now they've been treated roughly by the jailer. Totally unfair. The whole thing was a setup. The whole thing was a lie. And what do they do? Well, Silas probably looked over at Paul. He was anything like modern day Christians. Silas would have looked over at Paul and said, Paul, I thought you said you had a vision. You sure you just didn't eat too much? Too late at night. This can't be God. Now, folks, that's right. That's exactly where most Christians would be. We missed it somewhere. We had to have missed it somewhere. There's no way this would be the will of God for us. Right? Anybody know of anyone, including yourself, that would have been saying, praise God, I'm right where God wants me to be. Wouldn't be our first thought, would it? But notice what these two guys do. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. You know what I like about these guys? They understand that when you're doing what God wants you to do, that's when the devil raises his head. So why think it a strange thing? Peter said it this way. Why think it a strange thing that you are set upon by these fiery trials? In other words, where's the surprise here, folks? Everybody's complaining about the trouble they're in. Okay, where's the surprise? If you're walking in line with the will of God, if you're walking according to his word, why should you be surprised that the devil's causing trouble? Isn't that the way that it works? Well, sure, it's the way it works. Well, Pastor Mike, I'm just being attacked with sickness. Yeah, and? Isn't that the way it works? You take a stand of faith in the word of God. You stand up and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto healing, among other things. Isn't that where the devil tests your resolve? Yet we say, well, you said if we just said it, we'd have what we say. And and now I'm hurting. Where's the surprise? Of course you're going to be attacked. You think the devil's going to leave you alone? You think he's going to leave me alone? Seriously? Wouldn't that be lovely? Wish I could find a scripture for that. Speak the word only and you'll never have another problem. 
Man, I'd take a hold of that scripture if it was in there. Trust me, it ain't there. No, in fact, the Bible says they that live godly in Christ and living godly in Christ would have to be being a doer of the word. You can't be godly unless you are a doer of the word. They that live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. You're going to be set upon. People are going to come against you. The devil's going to come against you. Where is the surprise? But what do we do? It's not even midnight. We're not even beaten and we're not in in prison. And what do we do? We whine like little babies. Well, I just don't understand why this is happening to me. God knows I love him. I've given him my life. Oh, Pastor Mike, please help. You'd be surprised how often I get that. Where's the surprise, folks? You live for God, the devil's going to come against you. But that's nothing to be afraid of. See, some people may hear that and say, well, I better rethink this doing the word stuff. Well, it's nothing to be afraid of. You've got everything you'll ever need to take care of him. You've got everything you'll ever need to overcome whatever he brings against you, no matter how severe what he's bringing against you looks like. If what you're dealing with and what you're facing is not covered by the finished work of Jesus, then we're all sunk. Might as well burn the Bible and just have a good old time until we die. But no, thank God Jesus has covered it all. Amen? And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. Now, if you're in prison, what are you going to pray for? I'm praying to get out. I don't know about you. And if I'm Paul, I'm praying to get out. And if Silas is praying for something else, I am not agreeing with his prayer. These guys are praying for the same thing we would pray for. They're praying to get out. They're praying for deliverance. I have no doubt that they're saying, Lord, we're right where you put us. You told us to come to this city. This is not our fault. This is your fault. We just got one little girl delivered from the power of the devil. And look what they've done. We're not complaining about it. We count it uh, an honor to be beaten for the name of Jesus, but get us out of here. You didn't send me to Philippi to spend all my time in prison. Get me out of here. That'd be my prayer. Wouldn't it be yours or something similar? But they didn't even stop with praying. It said they prayed and sang praises. Now, folks, if you'll allow me, That's where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. They're singing praises. Why? Because they're in prison? No, they don't want to be in prison. Because their backs are bleeding? No, they didn't want to be beaten. Because they're in jail? No, they didn't want to be thrown in jail. They didn't want to be mistreated. They didn't want to be abused. They're not thanking God because something wrong has happened. They're not thanking God because of what the devil has done. They're thanking God because they believe God hears and answers prayer. Get us out of here in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for doing it. That's singing praises. And notice what else it says. It says, and the prisoners heard them. Now put yourself in the other jail cell. Flavius, what's that? I don't know, Dorcas. What is that? Is that somebody singing? Well, it sounds like it. These rock walls are thick, but it sounds like somebody's singing. What in the world would anybody be singing about in here? Shh, listen. 
What are they doing? They're singing praises to God for His deliverance, for His, His, His great power, for His ability to deliver, whatever it is. They're thanking God for the answer to their prayer. It says the prisoners heard them. They're not quiet about it. Some people bless their hearts. Well, I just have a song in my heart. Well, don't expect any answers outside your heart then. Praises aren't supposed to just be in your heart. They're supposed to be from your heart, out of your mouth. That's faith in action. That's the highest type of faith there is, folks. It's thanking God for the answer before you see it. And that's what you see at work here. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises. Now, I believe it was literally midnight, but this could be figurative to be midnight in your situation. The darkest hour of your situation. There's no hope, or at least it seems that way. But with God, it's never too late. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and. A lot of people just need to add to the and, add an and to their praying, and they'd be on the right track. They've done the praying. They've done the right thing as far as prayer is concerned. Now they all, all they need to do is start singing praises. They prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. You've heard me tell the story about Lillian Yeomans, the, the healing rooms that she had. She turned a house. Uh, she used to be a medical doctor. She came from uh, a wealthy family, and uh, I think she's in Chicago. And she turned uh, the, the house that she inherited from, she and her sister turned the house that they inherited from her father, who was also a medical doctor, into a healing room. She went into the ministry after being a medical doctor for many years and saw the healing power of God in her own life. So they had um, uh, quite a, a reputation in that city and, and surrounding areas for getting people healed. Doctors would refer people to them. Uh, there's nothing more we can do, but if I were you, I'd go over to these healing rooms that um, Dr. Yeomans and her sister have. And, and so people, there were waiting lists for, for many months to get in there. And there was one lady that was in there, and they would minister to her every day. And, oh, she got in there and was really disappointed. She had waited a long time to get in there and couldn't, couldn't walk. She was on it was like a three- or four-story thing, you know, straight up almost, all kinds of steps and stairs. So they had a real problem getting this lady up those steps in the stretcher finally got her into one of the upper floor rooms with uh, uh and situated and she just thought oh i've heard so much about these healing healing rooms now i'm going to get healed god's going to heal me and found out that they came in twice a day and read to them from deuteronomy 28 talking about what the curse of the law was in galatians chapter 3 being redeemed from the curse of the law and they would feed them when they would come and and minister to them and outside of that that was it I've been waiting for months for this. They, she saw no results. She was really disappointed, really downcast. And she started praying, complaining, oh, God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Well, she was a Christian, hadn't been a Christian for a long time. And all of a sudden, she had a vision. And in this vision, she saw one of these big marketplace scales, you know, where you balance out two, two baskets on uh, a basket on either end, and they balance each other out. Like this. Well, on one end, she saw it way down at the bottom and it was labeled prayer. And on the other one that was way up on the top, it was labeled praise. And the Lord spoke to her and said, when the praise balances out the prayer, that's when your healing comes. Acts 16, 25. They prayed and sang praises. Well, she got busy. She started praising God. She started singing little songs and it got all over into the house. 
Other people started picking it up. Other people started catching on to the little songs that they were singing. Dr. Yeoman's sister was a real songwriter, and so she had written a lot of spiritual songs herself, and so she provided her with some of the tunes and different things like that. So she's just thanking God. Some of it she's singing songs. Other of it she's just singing out of her heart. Thank you, Lord, for healing me. Thank you that it's done. Thank you that you've heard my prayer. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Whatever. She's making up her own stuff. Well, this goes on for a day or two, then a week, then another week. Finally, at the end of about the second or maybe it was the third week, I'm not sure how long it was, all of a sudden she has another vision. Now, instead of this thing being way down here with prayer, the basket of prayer filled up and the basket of praise way up on top, now she sees that it's starting to even out. All of a sudden the power of God hit her and she jumps up out of the bed and she starts screaming and running up and down those stairs. What'd she change? Not her prayer. She changed her praise. So, folks, I want you to see something. In this story, I want you to see the name of Jesus working twice. Number one, to set the little girl free, but also they're praying in the name of Jesus for deliverance. And it shows you how both of them work. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Well, what happened? And suddenly, I love when the Bible says suddenly. I believe God's still in the suddenly business. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately the doors were, all the doors were opened, not just theirs, but all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Now Flavius and Dorcas over in the other cell wondering what's going on. They're free too. Along with everybody else that's in there. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Why are they all still there? Because the guys that probably thought they were nuts for praying out loud, thinking God was going to help them, first of all, and secondly, praising God for the answer, now are waiting to see what Paul says to do next. We thought they were nuts. Now we're free. What's he saying? Paul? You still in there? Are you going anywhere? No, let's stay put for a while. Okay. Hardened criminals, staying put. Because they've seen the power of God at work. They know why the doors are open. They know why the bands have fallen off. The chains have fallen off. It had to have something to do with the prayer and the praise that they heard. Or else they would have run for the hills. But they're sitting dead in their tracks. They've seen the power of God. Folks, it's an amazing thing. When we begin to do the works of Jesus. When we begin to to believe God for and expect the supernatural in our lives, we have no idea what effect it's going to have on other people. I wonder what happened with these guys. Then the keeper then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now isn't that an interesting question? What must I do to be saved? What does that tell you? That tells you that they've been speaking the word of God in their prayer. They've been speaking the word of God in their praises. Because he doesn't stop and say, wait a minute, why are you guys in jail? He says, what do I need to do to get saved? 
Then he winds up taking them home, taking care of them. Doesn't even worry about the other prisoners. Doesn't even give them another thought. Doesn't lock up. Just takes them home. Paul answers and says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved and your house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all those that were in his house. And he took him the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the sergeant, saying, Let those men go. Too late. God already did that. Now, folks, God works in different ways. Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 12 tell us that, that, that Peter, in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles were set free by an angel. In Acts chapter 12, Peter by himself was set free by an angel when he was, when they were in prison, both times. He's, an angel appeared in the prison and, and set them free, opened the doors and set them free. Here it wasn't an angel, although I don't have any doubt that an angel was at work in the earthquake and with the doors opening and so forth, but nobody said, there's no record that anybody saw an angel. So they may certainly have been at work, just like they were in the other cases. But notice what brought it about. They prayed and sang praises. Folks, the name of Jesus is way more powerful than we give it credit for. Okay, turn with me over to Acts chapter 19. Here's the one I want to, this is the whole reason that I started this seven weeks ago. It only took me seven weeks to get here. That's pretty quick for me. Starting in verse 1, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. Here's the first time he's been, in, he, first time he comes to Ephesus. He found certain disciples. Now, what does that mean to you? He found certain disciples. That says to me he found people that he thought was saved. He, saw, he found people that through their actions or their gathering together or whatever the case was, he assumed they're born again. Wouldn't you think so? I mean, wouldn't you assume that certain disciples means that? And so he asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He, uh, he obviously, now it's stating that he said that he thought they were believers. And he's asking, have you been filled with the Spirit since you were saved? And they said unto him, we've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Well, wait a minute. How could you be saved and not hear about the Holy Ghost? Now Paul starts asking a little bit further questions, digging a little bit deeper. He said unto them, verse 3, Under what then were you baptized? And they said, Under John's baptism. They've never heard about Jesus. They've never heard about the Holy Ghost. All they heard about John's baptism was John's baptism, who said, Repent and be baptized, because there's one coming after me. Then Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, he's not talking about water. He's talking about becoming saved, being baptized into Christ, accepting Jesus' sacrifice, and Jesus is the Lord of the lives. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. So now they've gone from being disciples of John to being saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And all the men were about 12. Now, folks, I want you to notice that he starts with a group of 12 people and has a revival that reaches all of Asia in a very short time. The Bible says, despise not the day of small beginnings. Things may not be as big or as glorious as you thought they were going to be by now. But don't despise what God has started with. 
And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. And when it says he went into the synagogue, now he's arguing with the Jews. He's teaching them. He's telling them things out of the Old Testament, out of the law. Some they receive, some they won't receive. So he's disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when diverse, different ones were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way. So he's already testified that Jesus is the way. Spake evil of that way before the multitude. He departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Now, historical documents tell us, uh, uh, we don't know how accurate they are, but the implication is, the indication is, Tyrannus had a medical school. And he went to this medical school, or this school of Tyrannus, whatever it was. But like I said, there's some evidence that uh, there was a medical school. He went to this place instead of the synagogue, and that's where he's having services. And he takes all those with him out of the synagogue, the 12 certainly that he started with, and whoever else believes on Jesus by that time after three months. He takes them, and he continues to have church services. And he disputes. There are people that come in. They're still arguing, but he's he's answering their arguments and preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God. And this continued by the space of two years. So he's been in town for two years and three months now. This continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, do you remember back in chapter 16 where it said the Holy Ghost wouldn't let him go into Asia? It's not because God didn't want to go into Asia. He had a better way to get there. He reached Asia from Ephesus. Two years and three months, he has a move of God. He has such results that all of Asia hears the word of God. Now, notice it says in verse 11, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Don't get caught up thinking that he had the revival and then God started doing the works. The works were the reason that he had the revival. The reason that it tells us about the works afterwards is it's going to identify something about how specific those new works were. So where it says this two years and three months or two years in the school of Tyrannus, three months in the synagogue, two years in the school of Tyrannus, and then all of Asia heard is because God was doing special miracles by the hands of Paul. That's what spread the news. Folks, it's always the glory of God that gets the word out. It's always signs and wonders that God uses as the dinner bell to bring people in. Always, always has been, always will be. So here are the works that God started doing. God brought special works, special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought into the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now notice he's casting out devils, and he's healing the sick through handkerchiefs or cloths. Can you not see that as being a work of the name of Jesus? Those are two of the signs that follow them that believe in the name of Jesus. Now, maybe these are part of the greater works, because nowhere do we see that Jesus did this in the same way, although people were healed by touching Jesus' garment. Maybe this is part of the greater works. I don't know. The Holy Ghost calls them special miracles. I don't know what a special miracle is. A miracle is pretty special. So how do you get a special miracle? I don't know. But that's what the Holy Ghost said. So notice what's happening. Both healings and deliverances are taking place long distance because of the word of God being preached. Folks, God is never hindered by time or space. Never. We are, and therefore we think he is, but not so.
The centurion knew this in Matthew chapter 8, where he said, you don't have to come to my house. You just speak the word here and my servant will be healed. Well, how far did, how did he know that the word of God worked long distance? Because he understood authority. Authority has nothing to do with time or space. You speak the word, you have authority, my servant will be healed. So God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Notice the word, the, the signs and wonders, the special miracles that are being done in the name of Jesus. Folks, the name of Jesus has not lost one bit of special power, special miracle working power. It does the same thing today as it do, did back then. It'll heal long distance. It'll heal in person. It'll heal anyone who will receive it. Pure and simple. We put all kinds of limitations on things. We think it's got to be a special anointing in a service. We think it's got to be a special minister. We think it's got to be a special atmosphere. We think it's got to be all kinds of things. And God couldn't care less what we think it's got to be. It's about believing in the name. That's what's got to be, is faith in the name. And that's the only criteria Jesus said. Jesus did not say, and if you have the special atmosphere or special music, the works that I do shall you do also. Thank God he didn't say that. No, he didn't say there were any conditions other than calling for and requiring, placing a demand on the name of Jesus through faith. That's it. And here's what I want you to see. God wrote these special miracles. People are getting healed and people are getting set free from evil spirits. Verse 13, then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, vagabond Jews. You know what that means? That means unsaved people. They call themselves Jews. But they're out there doing their own thing. They're not following the law of Moses. They're out doing their own thing. Well, what thing are they doing? They're exorcists. They charge people money to try to set them free from the power of the devil. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. The point I want you to see is that there was such a move of God that unsaved people are trying to use the name because they recognize the power. Now, folks, the Bible says the glory of the last days will be greater than the early church. This is early church. God wants to do a work. He wants to magnify the name of Jesus in such a way so that even the unsaved people recognize there's power in the name. Now, their attempt to use it didn't work out too well. We'll cover that in just a moment. But the fact that they recognized the power in the name, not the power in Paul, but the power in the name of Jesus so that they tried to use it themselves shows you the inherent power in that name. And it hadn't lost one bit of power. Just as powerful today as it was back then. There were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew and a chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered when they said, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? I love that. I just love that. Here's the devil saying, I know Jesus and I know Paul. Thought I had him in prison a little while back. Thought I had him trapped. Thought I had him shut up. Next thing I know. The jailer is saved and taken care of it. He's out and start preaching and has another revival that reaches all of Asia. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? 
You know something I've always considered when I, when I read this verse of Scripture? Does the devil know me? I certainly want him to. Does he know you? You certainly should want him to. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them. There's seven of them. One guy leaps on seven. And overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. The Bible doesn't say so, but I don't think they tried that again. And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Please notice that. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. The name of Jesus was magnified. When the unsaved tried to use the name unsuccessfully, because they recognized the power in that name, but it didn't work for them because it's based on relationship. The name's not yours unless you're in Christ. But if you are, then it's yours. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. I like the rest of the story. We'll finish real quickly. Verse 18, and many that believed, that means believers, that means people that are saved, many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them for before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. That's about the equivalent in, in modern-day uh, uh, silver prices. That would be about the equivalent of $15 million. Can I ask you a question? What are believers doing with occult stuff? Curious arts, books, stuff like that. Up until this point in time, apparently, the believers were just mixing Christianity with whatever else they had going on in their lives. And Ephesus was a city where it was given to idols. There were all kinds of different idol worships, temples and stuff like that that were going on. Diana of the Ephesians was the greatest, but she was by no means the only temple that was there. Hers was not the only temple. And so here up until this point, even though there's a great revival, even though all of Asia is hearing the word of God, signs and wonders are being done, people are being healed and people are being set free from the power of the devil, you still got people that aren't totally committed to the things of God. Now we can spend some time talking on how could you be in the middle of that kind of revival where God's doing special miracles and not be totally sold out to God. But the answer is really pretty simple. And that is people get distracted and concerned about things in their own lives and they put that above the things of God. It's something we always have to guard against. It's something we always have to keep a watch on. But something happened. Thank God for the power of God. Here's the glory of God, not through a successful use of the name of Jesus, but through an unsuccessful use by seven unsaved guys that cause everybody's eyes to be opened, to wake up and say, wait a minute, this stuff is real. And so they brought all their stuff, burned it, gave it up, made Jesus first and foremost in their lives. And what happened then? What happens when you make Jesus first and foremost in your life? Verse 20. So when they got rid of everything else, 
so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Same thing's true in our own lives, folks. You want the word of God to prevail in you? You want to grow mightily in the things of God? You're going to have to put the things of God first. And notice it was all centered around the name of Jesus. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. I don't think there's near enough emphasis on the name of Jesus in the modern day church. We talk about the name of Jesus for forgiveness of sins. But we don't even talk about the name of Jesus where righteousness is concerned. We meaning the modern day church. We do around here. But the modern day church just talks about forgiveness of sins and then doesn't tell you who you are now that you're saved. How are you supposed to live successfully that way? How are you supposed to be effective in the things of God like that? That creates a mentality that all we're supposed to do is get saved and hold on to the end. But folks, holding on to the end cannot be doing the works of Jesus. Jesus did not hold on for three years until until he went to the cross. That can't be what Jesus meant when he said, the works that I do shall you do also and even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. It can't be what he meant. No way. Impossible. What in the world caused the church to turn loose of what Jesus said? Could it be we're like the people in Ephesus? We got saved. But I mean, after all, we've got busy lives. We we may not have occult stuff. But we got business deals. We got family situations. We got school. We got whatever else there is. Hey, it's hard to find time for God, you know. But when these people put the word of God first, I I, got to tell you, this is one of the great awakenings of the church right here in Ephesus. And notice what caused the church to wake up. It wasn't just the signs and wonders and miracles. It was when somebody tried and failed. When it was made known that the name of Jesus has power, the devil respects the name of Jesus when somebody that's joined together with him uses it. That's what woke the church up in Ephesus. And as a result... The revival that they had that reached Asia in a two-year period of time. Folks, do you realize how short that is to reach a continent? Two years it took for God to reach Asia because of the signs and wonders and miracles. And then when the people commit themselves to God, that's when the word begins to mightily grow and prevail. We don't know what happened after that because Paul is directed by the Holy Spirit to leave. I wonder what did happen to that. I wonder what would have happened if somebody had, had, had been mature, spiritually mature, and carried that thing on and continued the teaching and preaching of Paul. Man, it looks to me like that would have been the foundation for a, a springboard to go and do even more. Thank God for the name. Here's seven guys that put a demand on the name that had no right to it. And everybody heard and fear fell upon them all. And they magnified the name of the Lord Jesus. You know what that says to me? That says that they, for the first time, began to rightly understand and appreciate who this guy is that's telling them about the name of Jesus. He's somebody even the devil knows. 
It must be somebody with God. Oh, thank God for the name. I wonder if God's changed his attitude toward the name of Jesus. I wonder if Jesus has taken a break. He said, whatever you call for or require, place a demand on in my name, I'll do it. I wonder if that's still good. You bet your bippy it is. Absolutely, it's still good. That promise is true for eternity. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the wonderful name of Jesus. The name that's above every name. Forgive us, Father, for being so casual and flippant about the name of Jesus because it is the most powerful thing in the universe. It's the answer to all of our problems. It's the means of your provision in every regard. Thank you, Father, that that name carries the same power over healing that it always did. That it carried in Jesus' day and even greater because the name of Jesus is greater now than it was then. It carries all the power that the apostles used in the book of Acts. And it's available for us just like it was available for them. Father, in the name of Jesus, we curse sickness in every person's body here in this place. In the name of Jesus, we demand that that sickness be removed from these bodies. As pastor of this church, Father, I declare that our church is free from sickness and disease in every manner. And in every way, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for doing a miraculous work, whether it's a small thing or whether it's a big thing. Thank you that every one of us is free from sickness in the name of Jesus. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for bringing it to pass. You said if we called for it, if we required it, you'd do it. So we thank you for doing it. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great week.